Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hay on Why, um, to a gloriously sunny day, which was caught most of us by surprise. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome you this morning to uh, this latest talk in association with the University of Cambridge as part of the Cambridge series. Um, this talk is The Menace of Monolingualism. Um, personally, I've always felt slightly embarrassed um, around friends who can read foreign literature in its native language uh, or friends who are able to holiday without a phrase book. But worse than mere embarrassment, is this, quote, this talk will question, is speaking only one language harming us? and our society. So to talk us through this is Professor of Philology and Linguistics at the University of Cambridge, Wendy S. Bennett. Please welcome her to the stage. Good morning and thank you very much to come, for coming to this talk. Um, I'm Wendy S. Bennett, as the, I've been told, I'm a Professor of French Philology and Linguistics in the University of Cambridge. And I'm also principal investigator or lead, re lead researcher on a research project entitled Multilingualism, Empowering Individuals, Transforming Societies. So the menace of multilingualism, that's a bit of a dramatic statement, isn't it? But we're beginning to think more and more of monolingualism as being something like a newly identified disease. What are its symptoms? Well, you're likely to be, have the onset of dementia some four or five years later. You're likely to recover less well from strokes. You're not going to be so good at keeping attention or switching between different tasks. I'm going to tell you more about all these things as we go on. And you perhaps have less sensitivity to understanding other view, people's viewpoint. Now, of course, the good news is it's curable. And I hope that I'm going to convince you that you want to be cured. Sorry. <clears throat> now, one of the things we seem to know is that this is a disease, this problem is something that we in the UK seem to be particularly susceptible to. We, we have a tendency to, to suffer from monolingualism. People, British people tend to believe that they are poor at learning languages. I'm often asked, are you going to find a gene that proves that we, the Brits, aren't good at learning languages? I'm not very confident about that, I have to say. But we shouldn't forget that actually the UK is also richly multilingual. Nearly one in five children starting a primary school in the UK have a home language other than English. So here are the things about why the UK is particularly monolingual. Every year there is a, a survey published called Language Trends and I've picked out some of its key findings for you. Now the good news is, and many of you all know this, is that now in primary schools all children, at least in theory, should be learning a foreign language at key stage two. But what we do know is there's lots of disparity in the quality of provision at primary level. Sometimes people aren't able really to know much of the language themselves, but are still having to teach it. Or the children may get maybe a half an hour a week, which is really very little. We know, too, that the transition between primary and secondary school is particularly problematic for languages. Ofsted produced a report a while back called Key Stage 3, The Wasted Years, and modern languages were picked out as being particularly bad in that move between primary and secondary. GCSEs... Yes, now, we with the EBAC, we are confident that perhaps more children will take GCSEs, but there's a new GCSE syllabus, and teachers are very worried about that. On the other hand, the numbers taking languages in A-level are in falling and continuing to fall year on year quite dramatically. And I think a lot of us are quite concerned 
that the number of opportunities for young people to engage with native speakers and indeed to experience foreign culture at first hand are dwindling, even school trips and the kind of things that many of us would have done when we're at school are becoming um, increasingly rare. And the picture at, in the university sector in higher education is equally or perhaps even more bleak, as you can see. Since 2002, we've lost nearly more than half the number of students enrolling to take modern languages. Uh, you can see, if you look there, that the numbers for French here and German particularly bad, but it's affecting all the languages. And all the things that universities have tried to try and encourage people to take up languages, joint honours and different things, none of those really seem to be having a huge amount of success. And this is also just to show that the decline is even greater in the post-92 sector, the, what some of us may still think of as the, the new universities, um, although they're not very new now. Um, and that, I think, is part of a bigger picture which we see where people often think of modern languages as being a rather elitist subject. It's the sort of subject you do if daddy has a villa in the house of France, or you go skiing every year in Verbier or whatever, but it's not something for the ordinary people. They don't need it, they don't see the point of it. So, that's the menace of monoling. that's the background, we're very monolingual. What can we do about it? What we know is that the kind of purely instrumental arguments that have been used up to now haven't really worked to persuade people to start try and learn a language. So you tell a child, it'll be great because when you go to France, you'll be able to order your ice cream yourself. And the child goes and starts a few words of halting French and the person immediately replies in English. Or we're told, oh, it'll be good for jobs. But the city, if they want to employ somebody, they can employ... Uh, a Swiss person, let's say, who speaks four languages fluently, has a master, has a, a degree in economics, a master's in business study, and we don't, we are not able to compete with them. So these arguments have failed, and if we're going to try and find people, ways to get people to start thinking about coming back to learning languages, we're going to have to stress other aspects, the strategic importance of languages, the importance of cross-cultural understanding and so on. And we need to have some clear examples which are going to appeal to young people, appeal to their parents, appeal to teachers, and, and so on, so that we can try and uh, encourage people to think of languages as having the same status as the STEM subjects have. And I often say to people, 20 years ago, chemistry was in a pretty similar position in our universities, but now people think of that as one of the subjects that they aspire for their children to do. So, this is a project that um, we're in the middle of at the moment, which, as I've said, is aiming to demonstrate the value of languages to individuals and societies and to show the importance of speaking more than one language or of being multilingual. And we're thinking about, as you'll see, questions of health and well-being, identity, diversity, social cohesion. And this is a big and complex question. And as you'll see, we've got a large team, an interdisciplinary team, and lots of non-academic partners. We feel it's a, a project which we need to come at from lots of different angles. Uh, if we're really going to try and get people, uh, the general public, to think about the reasons to learn languages and the benefits of it, whatever your age, whatever your background. So this is just a, a mention of who we are. Um, it's a project that's led by me at the University of Cambridge, but we have researchers in Belfast, Edinburgh and Nottingham. For an arts and humanities team, we're a very large team. We're about 35. And we have some international partners, 
uh, one in China, one in Hong Kong, and uh, colleagues in Bergen and Girona. And you can see um, from the photos that we, we do try to choose places which are not only academically in, uh, excellent, but nice to visit with nice scenery and uh, places to nice to spend uh, a week or two working with colleagues. And as I said to you, this is a question which we felt we had to come at from all different disciplinary perspectives. So there will be some perspectives there which will come as no surprise to you. So we have on the left uh, literature, cinema and culture, which is sort of the, the bread and butter, if you like, of uh, modern languages and a modern language degree. History of ideas, languages and linguistics, so sociolinguistics and applied linguistics, education, specialists in, in pedagogy and education, and as you'll hear, also cognitive scientists. And leading such a big and interdisciplinary team is both exciting and, I would say, quite challenging at times. Sometimes there are shades of C.P. Snow and the two cultures thing. At one of our very early meetings, the cognitive scientists who know exactly what they do they have a hypothesis, they test it, they crunch their data, they produce their statistics, yes or no, said to my literary colleagues, don't want to be rude, but what is it you do all day? <laughs> do, do you just sit and read books? Well, yes and no, of course. But So the, 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 there's, there's a, been a lot of work thinking around these issues and also just thinking about basic things like, what do we mean by a language? It, it might seem a very silly and, and uh, obvious question, but where do we draw the line between a language and a dialect? If you're a cognitive scientist, you might do it very different. You might say, we have this amount of vocabulary in common with this language, and therefore they're not really the different languages. We, as literary and cultural experts, will say, well, no, you can't. You can't do it like that. It's about the history, the culture, and everything else that goes with it. So that gives you an example of how we're coming at these questions from very different perspectives. Another thing that we wanted to do with this project, as goes back to one of my very early slides, was to try and think about language learning within the broader context of the linguistic landscape in the UK. So, of course, we're looking at the languages which have always been taught in our schools and universities, French and German and Spanish, and those which are becoming more important, um, Chinese particularly, there's a Mandarin Excellence program being rolled out across certain schools in the country at the moment. But we also wanted to think about the indigenous languages of the UK, uh, Welsh, of course, uh, very much in evidence are here around us, Irish, Scottish Gaelic, with some comparative studies from, from, from Europe, and indeed the many community languages of our country, uh, Polish, Bengali, Cantonese, and so on. And this is just to give you a flavour of the kind of partners we're working with. We have over 30 non-academic partners, and the, very, the idea is, to, is very much to try and engage with them right from the outset to, if you like, co-create the research with them and not just use them for dissemination. So we have partners like Age UK, the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists, British Chamber of Commerce, we have language associations and language testing associations, we have bodies like UNESCO, we have local bodies like the Cambridge Ethnic Community Forum, which is a, a group which welcomes newly arrived migrants and refugees to uh, Cambridge and helps them integrate um, and, and has uh, a language elements in that, as you can imagine. And we're doing theatre work, we're doing writing studios, we're working with museums and other bodies. So we're trying then to not just talk uh, to the academic world, but to try and have an influence particularly on education, government, and communities. And we are thinking particularly about working with government. We have 
three people from Whitehall and the devolved administrations working with us, each come for a two-year period, and they help us again to find out what are the questions that politicians are interested when they're thinking about languages. And then working with the, the general public through media and creative arts and other things. And one thing that I'm very excited about is that next year we're going to run in the four cities of the project a pop-up museum of languages. Why that? Well, because we don't have a lang languages museum in the UK. When I first started this project, I thought, well, a good partner would be a languages museum. There isn't one. We have a museum for dog collars. We have a museum for lawnmowers. But we don't have a museum for languages, and yet language is so much of who we are, what we are, how we think about ourselves. And so this idea of a pop-up museum is to try and get people thinking about that would be a great idea and hopefully moving eventually to having a national museum of languages. This is just my last, I promise, background slide before I give you some, some more proper information about what we're doing and how we're working. But this is just to say that the, we have six research strands. Um, I'm going to talk particularly today about um, three, five, uh, three, four, and six. But um, we have strand one, which is looking at how political regimes champion and combat the particular linguistic diversity. And there we're particularly looking at Ukraine and Catalonia. I think we had no idea when we started the project how topical Catalonia would become in the last 12 months or so. Um, and then strand uh, two is looking at standard languages and norms. What defines a, a standard language, what the cultural, historical, and other factors defining a standard language. Is it important for a, a, a language like Catalan to have a standard? Does that help it or hinder it? What's the role of standard language in education? Again, is that an advantage to children or a disadvantage? And then strand five is looking at language learning across the li lifespan and asking some of the questions like, is it true that the earlier the better? Or which languages should we be learning? Is it better to learn a language which is close to the languages we know or one that is quite different? So as I said, now I'm going to talk about three areas which I hope show some of these new reasons for learning languages. Multilingualism concognition, the implications for health and well-being, and this is looking at the influence of language learning and practice on cognitive function. I'm going to talk today about it in terms of aging and brain disease, but we're also looking, for instance, at children with autism who are often either encouraged to give up a home language or taken out of language learning. And there's no evidence to support that that's a good idea. The second area I'm going to look at is uh, about uh, questions of identity, diversity, and social cohesion. And here I'm going to focus on uh, Northern Ireland. And we're looking at questions here of identity, uh, in relation, languages in relation to peer group identity, community identity, and indeed national identity. So where, lang where identity is challenged or questioned, uh, what can we do there? And then finally, if we're going to make this work, we need to find ways of teaching languages better and to make languages more exciting. And I'm going to say something about the work we're doing with our schools and the work on uh, feeding in actually some of the research findings into school teaching itself. Okay, so let's start with the first one, the cognitive benefits of multilingualism. And I think the first thing to say, of course, is that this has been um, quite a contentious uh, area, and there are ridiculous claims, I think, made on both sides. So I, I hope you can see on the, on the left-hand side, people who are bilingual are smart, creative, and indeed better lovers. Now, 
Smart and creative we can discuss perhaps a bit later. We are not, as a team, I'm afraid to say, testing whether bilinguals are better lovers. Indeed, I can't quite conceive of the kind of experiment we might do to test that. But you can see that there's a lot of hype on one side. On the other side, there's also a lot of people who say, well, yes, but this is all a myth. This is really, there's, there's no cognitive benefits to learn a language. What I get the benefits from is being a monolingual English speaker. Okay. So, first thing I suppose to think about then is what do we mean when we say bilingual? How many of people in the audience would consider themselves to be bilingual? How many people would say they speak another language? That's a bit more. How many people would say they've learnt a language sometime in their life? Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, it all depends what we mean when we say bilingual. Um, it can, it can be what we often think of as bilingual, as early bilingualism, people who've learnt two languages more or less from birth, or, or who are very proficient, as opposed to late bilingualism, people who learn a language later on in life. Um, and very often, one per, people are, very, are much stronger in one language than another, or they use one language more than another. So, about 10 years ago, work began in Canada to look at the effect of bilingualism on uh, cognitive health. And Ellen Bellistock um, worked with 230 dementia patients, about half of whom were bilingual. And what she found was that the bilinguals tend to develop uh, dementia on average about four years later. Straight away, people said, well, this is a bit chicken and egg, isn't it? Is it because they were bilingual or multilingual that their cognition was better? Or is it that if you're just a bit more intelligent, better educated, then you turn to have another language? So what's the direction that we're going? And indeed, people pointed to a number of what we think of as confounding factors. So were these people all very educated? What, was, what about their diet? Did that affect it? Or their lifestyle? Or their profession? And lots of these people were uh, immigrants. And we know that's what's called the healthy migrant effect. So there was quite a lot of skepticism uh, surrounding these, uh, this early work. Thomas Back, who's working with me in, the, in our team in Edinburgh, then said, OK, so we've seen this in Canada, educated, affluent migrants. What about if we go and do something similar in India? India is a highly bilingual, mono, multilingual indeed, it, and it's not associated with immigration. And he found the same results, the same four years delay. And indeed, in answer to some of those questions that I've just raised, he found the effect was greater with illiterates than with the educated. He then said, okay, well, that's something we have begun to find some evidence for dementia. What about another kind of cognitive impairment? What about strokes? And he looked at just over 600 stroke pa pa uh, patients, about, again, just over half of whom were bilingual. And they'd had the two co cohorts had had their stroke at more or less the same age, around 56, 56 and a half. And again, I hope you can see that those who return to full normal cognition, about 20% if you're monolingual, about 40% if you're bilingual. Conversely, those who had either vascular dementia or mild cognitive impairment at the end of it, two-thirds if you're monolingual, just under half if you're bilingual. Well, that's all very well. Lucky them. What about me? I was brought up in a totally monolingual household. I've got none of these advantages. I'm stuffed. 
I started learning French at 11 at school, which I guess many of you also did. So what we're now trying to do in the project is to see what happens if you learn a language later on in life. What if you're not, you know, not just bilingual from birth, happy few. What if everybody can get this advantage? And we started off working with um, some university students, um, looking at the differences between students who are taking foreign languages and those who are doing another humanities subject. And what we did with them is what we call the test of everyday attention. This is a, a clinical test, and it tests auditory attention rather than visual attention. And it, we know it has psychological validity. It's used across a whole range of different areas. Basically, what this is, is you're told, imagine you're going in a lift, and you have to listen to beeps. If the pitch is higher, you're going up a floor. If the pitch is lower, you're going down a floor. So it starts off quite easy. Beep, beep. OK, I'm on the first floor. I'm on the third floor. Beep, beep. I'm going down. OK, so it's quite straightforward. And you have to keep concentrating. Then we start making it more difficult because we say, OK, we're going to put some other sounds in, and you've got to ignore them. You've got to keep concentrating which floor you're on and suppress the, one, the beeps that you don't want to know. And that's when it gets a bit more difficult. And that's a way of testing the ability to suppress things you don't want, mental agility, working memory, switching between tasks. And what you can see, I hope, here, although probably you won't see the figures, is that by the fourth year, those who were doing, I think they were doing English literature, sorry if, you're, if that's what you did, um, those who did English literature had some improvement. Those who did languages, again, significantly more improvement. The next stage was to say, what about if we just give people a short, intensive, language course. So we took a group of participants to the Isle of Skye. Again, uh, these are hard gigs. Um, and we had two groups, <clears throat> one who were learning Gaelic and the other who were doing a calligraphy course. <coughs> and <clears throat> most of the people doing this were uh, older. People. In fact, the oldest person doing it was 78, a woman of 78. And what we, we tested them with this test of attention at the beginning and the end of the week. And what we found was that there was significant improvement in all groups in just one week of intensive language learning. And in fact, the person who showed the greatest improvement was the 78-year-old woman. Why? Because perhaps she had the furthest to improve. But that's an, a sign that you don't have to be young to learn language. People sometimes say to me, yeah, but you know, I'm too old to learn a language. It don't, you don't have to be good at it. You just have to do it. It's the practice. And the practice is important, as you can see, because we went back and tested these same people nine months later. And those who had continued to use and practice their language retained those cognitive benefits, whereas those who had given up were back where they started. So it's about practicing, and it's about language learning as a kind of mental gymnastics, a way of keeping yourself fit and healthy and active, just like we're told to walk 10,000 steps a day. It's part of what Thomas Courtback calls a healthy linguistic diet. So I hope that these examples have shown you that this is a clear case of a benefit, obviously for the individuals, but of course their families, and more widely for society, because as a society, we are worried about how we're going to care for, fund the care for increasingly aging population. And at the moment, no drug can give you four years delay in, in the onset of dementia. So language learning is a very promising way of contributing to healthy old aging. 
Okay, now a different kind of benefit, something really quite different now. And this is work we're doing in Northern Ireland, where, as you probably know, Irish, the status of the Irish language, is at the heart of the current debate around, um, well, diversity, but also it's the, re the main reason left why the Stormont Parliament is not currently meeting, that they can't agree on an Irish language act. So it's a so source of tension in the community. Irish is important for community cohesion in small areas of Belfast, particularly in West Belfast, Irish-speaking area, and it's been linked to regeneration and revitalization. But more generally across Northern Ireland and in Belfast, traditional allegiances dominate the debate. So Irish is very much aligned with the nationalist and Republican community, and the Protestant Unionist loyalist community are often fairly negative, or indeed hostile, towards the Irish language. It's sometimes called uh, a chill factor in the Irish political scene. So against this background, there are some potentially transformative developments taking place. Uh, one group that we're working with is a group called the El East Belfast Mission. So East Belfast is a Protestant area, and so this is a mission in the heart of the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community. And Linda Irvine there is running Irish classes for the Protestant community. And what we're doing is looking at the people who are learning it and how it's at altering their attitudes to questions of community relationships and their feeling of the other community. We're also working with Department for Communities to try and influence policy. And I think the third thing I would just mention is the work we're doing with a all-Ireland peace-building charity called Cooperation Ireland, and in particular its legacy project. And this is a project which is trying to work with future leaders, um, political leaders and community leaders, to give them training. And the work we're doing is with the loyalist community again, some of whom are former paras, and getting them to think about the Irish language. And the Irish language component of this project, which we are doing with them, has two parts to it. The first part is uh, something on place names. Why place names? Because everywhere in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, the place names have an Irish heritage. And it's a way of showing people that they all own the languages and the places around them, that Irish is not just for one community, that it's rooted in all the traditions. And then the other thing that we're doing is to teach these future leaders some basic Irish language, and in particular, some soft diplomatic skills in Irish. Again, allowing them to feel some ownership of the language, enhancing their soft diplomatic skills, and hope, hopefully enabling them to negotiate a bit more respectfully across the community divides. So again, trying to get across away from this idea that Irish only belongs to one community, and using the language as a way of building social cohesion, building understanding between cohesion, communities and, and building uh, post-conflict um, resolution. Finally, if we, as I said, if we're going to make things turn around, we need to improve the way languages are taught in schools, and in particular, we need to improve motivation. If I had a pound for every time somebody said to me, oh, I did French at school, but I didn't really like it, or oh, I did French at school, but I, 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 I wasn't any good at it, 
then I, I could probably have given up my job some years ago. What we're trying to look at here is how multilingualism and the extent to which you identify as being multilingual helps in language learning. So we're looking at the relationship between identity with attainment in two categories of learners. We're comparing people like me who are monolingual, who start learning languages at school. And then we're looking also at children who have English as additional language or another home language who are extending their linguistic repertoire through learning another language. Sometimes those children are thought of as being an irritation in the classroom. It's difficult to imagine, but people don't, they're not, they're not very welcome. We're trying to say these children who are already bilingual are a huge resource in the foreign language classroom. And we felt that with the growth of migration, there was a need to investigate more this relationship between multilingual and transcultural identity and foreign language learning, and see whether we could use a foreign language classroom as a place where you can consciously construct multilingual identity. So the premise is that if learners are helped to identify as multilingual, if they consciously told what the benefits and indeed some of the disadvantages of speaking more one language are, this will help them to be more motivated and then hopefully achieve more. And again, that has implications for their well-being and uh, the atmosphere in the classroom and indeed we would hope um, beyond. So this is some research conducted by um, the team in education in Cambridge, and they're working with seven secondary schools in England, in the east of England and London, deliberately choosing a range of geographical locations. So some kind of fen-type schools, those, you know, East Anglia, Wisbeach, and those surrounding fen villages, which have typically a lot of migrant workers, um, fruit pickers and that kind of thing. Um, and then more urban areas like Peterborough and central London. Range of school size and, and language provision and different demo demographics, um, backgrounds, educational background, socioeconomic socio status and so on. And we're comparing and looking at two groups, groups uh, who are in year eight and nine during the project, and those in year 10 and 11 at the project, over two years, and we're working with two and a half thousand school pupils. Now, this will be too small for you to see. It doesn't really matter. All it's saying is that we are carrying out a number of uh, bits of work with them. In the first one, which was done in the summer term uh, 2017, we uh, interviewed the, some of the children. We've got them all to fill in questionnaires, how they felt about languages, what languages they spoke, and so on. And then we've got school data, how good they were. We repeated that when they went into the next year um, in the autumn term of this year. And then we are just finishing now an intervention. So some groups of students have had this intervention about which I'm going to talk in a minute and then we will see whether it's made any difference. Why are we doing this? Well, we know that education has a fundamental role to play in identity formation, and indeed, modern foreign language learning does as well. So if we just look at this quote by Taylor, Taylor the middle one, Taylor says, adolescence is a major period of identity development, and foreign language learning Identity complexities inherent in adolescence overlap with the identity complexities which are inherent in language learning. Some people will say that one of the great things about speaking another language is that you can be a different person. You can reinvent yourself. It's a way of seeing things from another perspective. So... The question then is, can an identity-orientated language pedagogy help students become more motivated and therefore do better at languages? So what are we doing? We're consciously drawing on the work of our research project. 
and we're telling students very consciously, very explicitly, what the academic, cognitive, cultural, social, creative benefits are of learning a language. Incidentally, this also means it helps get around the question of, well, I don't really want to learn Welsh because it's not a very important language. Because if you get these benefits, whatever language you learn, particularly the cognitive benefits, some of the reasons about language hierarchies uh, fall away. And those children who, as I've said, already have another language in their background, because they, they have a community language at home, are asked to consciously share and talk about the linguistic and cultural resources they have. So if we might have a module that they work with, like languages in the community, and saying to them, how does this relate to me? How do I feel about it when I hear someone on the bus talking Polish or Estonian? What could I do to help encourage the visibility of languages around me? Would I like to do that? So you get this ongoing reflection about languages, their position in as developing multilinguals, the languages around them, and their, lang their language learning. So we're giving them knowledge about multilingualism, telling them about the how their identity can become multilingual, and getting them to reflect, reflexivity, reflect on these questions. Now, what is interesting is, when we ask these children to fill in the questionnaire, we ask them to each of them to place themselves on a multilingual scale. And at the left, you've got very multilingual, sorry, very monolingual, and then at the right, you've got very multilingual. And what was interesting is that the kids didn't always place themselves where we might have assumed. So an example would be a, a, a boy who um, spoke Polish at home and English uh, at school, completely bilingual, who actually placed himself very close to the very monolingual end. Why? Because he'd only just started to learn French, and he thought Polish didn't really count. It was unimportant. It wasn't a language learned at school, therefore it wasn't important language. And these are some of the actually heart-wrenching stories that you sometimes hear that people... School children are ashamed to admit that they know another language, that they speak another language at home. Conversely, we had a, a, a child who had done a year of, of French, just starting Spanish, knew a few words of Italian because she was learning a musical instrument, and she put herself on the very multilingual end. And that shows you how you can work with people's identity, that you, it does, it's not necessarily an objective thing. You can get people to think about themselves as being uh, multilingual. So what we've found already is that those who identify as being more multilingual are more positive about the value of languages, they are more likely to continue studying languages in the future, and they have actually a much higher perception of their ability. And so that we are now coming towards the end of this study, and what we're hoping is that the intervention will help shift this, these dispositions, and it will have this increased effect on students' motivation and attainment. So we know already that if you identify as being multilingual, whatever you are, it helps with motivation and achievement. So if we can intervene and get people to consciously think of themselves as being multilingual, even if they're not very proficient, proficiency doesn't really matter, then multilingualism can be seen as a kind of empowerment and actually something that you can be very good at. For the last couple of minutes, I'm just going to mention a couple of inspiring examples, one to do with foreign policy and one to do with the police. So following the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan, the military has sought to implement language skill training as a core skill through uh, top-down instruction from the vice chief of the defense staff. 
And this is done through two paths. One, which is called the De Defence Requirements Authority from Culture and Language, and that encourages any uh, military personnel to come forward and take an examination recording their competence in a foreign language. And that means it's current for three years, and that means that these people can be called upon at short notice for operations or urgent tasks. The great thing about it is that there are financial re rewards for doing this. That if you have a low language of French, you may get a couple of hundred pounds. If you have a high lang level language of an operationally important language, say a dialect of Arabic, it can be several thousand pounds. And so this has reduced the need for expensive res residential courses, but it's also coming back to this idea, what they call the whole forces concept, that it doesn't matter how you learn your language, it doesn't matter whether you learn it at school or university, you're a linguist or not, you're trained or not, it's a home language or not, however you've learned your language, it can be of value to the military. The other thing they have is the Defence Centre for Language and Culture, and there you can learn and up to two years um, five days a week, nine till four every day, uh, a range of languages, including Arabic, Dari, Farsi, French, Pashto, and Russian. And now any subunit command has to have a basic language skill. So why, why have I mentioned this example? Well, I think two things. One is there's been this cultural change. There's been this shift to believe that languages are a benefit. And there's also been a high-level champion saying, this has to happen. I don't want to overstate the case for it. There are still terrible shortages in certain important languages. Um, Ukrainian, Estonian, very few people registered with those languages. But the organizational cultural change is the key thing, and languages are now viewed by the military as an asset, indeed as essential, if you're going to be able to be successful in campaigns like Afghanistan or Iraq. And then finally, a couple of words about the Met Police recruitment campaign. In 2015 and 2016, the Met Police had a recruitment drive to, to recruit new officers who could speak and understand another language one of 25 languages of the community. And it said that Met works with these communities on a daily basis and is a key part of gaining confidence of those communities. Having officers who can do this is a key way of, of getting confidence and cooperation. And so again, the idea is that you can be a good policeman in London if you only speak language, one language. But if you're in a multicultural London where at least 300 languages are spoken on a daily basis, you can be a better policeman if you can engage with that community, you understand how that community works, and you can win the trust of that community by being able to speak their language. I hope, then, that these examples have begun to demonstrate to you the value of languages to individuals and to societies and some of the new reasons for becoming multilingual, whether we think of health and well-being, social cohesion, diplomacy and conflict resolution, defence and policing. I'm very grateful to you for coming to hit, listen to me today and we have, I think, about 10 minutes if you have any questions or comments you'd like to put. Thank you very much. Can I just say that we have a web page if you're interested. We, well, when I say we, my postdocs tweet and do Facebook. I'm, a, I'm not terribly skilled at it, but we have a Facebook page and Twitter. I am on Twitter, so do join in the conversation. And if any of you work with organizations who, who, which think they might have something to do, help with the project, also please get in touch with us. Hi, Wendy. Thank you very much for that. I think it's a really pertinent debate to be having here in Wales. 
Um, young Welsh people, I have the privilege of working with about 2,000 of them in the last year, um, alone with, part, with the MFL Mentoring Project, which you're aware of. We yes. work with you on the Mites Project. Yes, yes. Um, and the question of bilingualism is one that we are trying to tackle on a daily basis where young Welsh pupils, although they are studying Welsh from a very young age, compulsory in schools, they don't consider themselves bilingual, let alone multilingual. And this comes down to not valorizing any kind of proficiency in a language, community or otherwise. So how do we, my question is really, how do we start emphasizing, showing, demonstrating in really tangible terms to pupils that proficiency isn't, isn't all to do with native level acquisition of a language. Because at the moment, the way that it's taught in schools is with that target in mind. And that's what they're striving for, but it doesn't encourage that multilingual mindset, that idea that it's additive to learn lots of bits of different languages. Mm -hmm. Well, first thing, thing, first thing to say is that it's great that the Welsh government is really supporting both um, the Welsh language, it's a million, million Welsh speakers by 2050, and indeed foreign language learning. Um, many of you will know that the, uh, Europe has this uh, mother tongue plus two, the idea is that everybody should speak ideally three languages. And um, bilingualism plus one is really much something that the Welsh government is working towards and, and, and doing lots of really good work. I mean, I think I have two answers to that. One is that one of the things that we're trying to emphasize is that if you think of language learning as being good for your brain, as mental exercise, as, as giving you this, these skills, skills which we know employers want. So when I, one of our partners is the British Chambers of Commerce. When I first talked to them, I started talking to them about trade and international trade. And they sort of, you know, glazed over. And then I said, and there are these cognitive benefits. You're good at, at attention. And you're good at switching between tasks. And he said, that's what's interesting. That's what employers will like. So if you can get people to realize that this is a kind of mental gymnastics and that you get cognitive benefits and it doesn't, you don't have to be good. It's the training. We don't, you know, it's the same. I, I'm never going to be an Olympic athlete but I know that if I walk 10,000 steps, I'll be healthier than if I don't. And I think this is the same thing with learning a language. You don't have to be bilingual. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be proficient to a high standard. You have to do it. And actually, the more you do it, the better you can't become. And I think then, what I would say is, and I think I mentioned this already, that you get these benefits whatever language you learn. So if you have the advantage of being in a bilingual Welsh community, goodness, make use of it and then use that. We know that if you already learn one language, you get better at learning other languages, that you have what we call this metalinguistic knowledge. You know how, to, that, you know, how grammar begins to work, even if it's only tacitly. And therefore, you know, build, build on that. So it, and it doesn't matter what language you learn. It doesn't matter if it's a high-prestige language or a low-prestige language. You still get the, this value. And then the other thing I would say is that we hope that this work we're doing on identity will generate then material which we can give to schools. We're going to produce um, in training for, for, for teachers and materials for schools, which hopefully will help to address some of these questions and, 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 and roll it out um, more, more, more widely across, across the UK. Hello. Hello. Fascinating talk. Um, I'm rather chuffed that the lady spoke about the same subject that I'm very passionate about, and I'm glad she spoke first. It's helping to calm me down, <laughs> um, which is not easy these days. Um, as a second language learner for a fair number of years, um, embarrassingly, um, that may be because the dementia started earlier than perhaps with other people. I don't know. I'm not suffering officially. Um, I can't understand why. Um, you're obviously uh, going into great detail. And I see it as um, from my narrow-minded, insular Welsh perspective, that you should have uh, either 
then or considered more cooperation with the struggle that's taking place in Wales to interest people that are theoretically Welsh mm. in their own language. And the people that move in that, you know, they sell their house as my daughter could do in uh, living in Surrey and she'd have enough money to buy two and a half houses on the estate that I live in, which is in a beautiful part of Wales, it's only just down the road. And I've tried to battle with this um, lack of what I consider to be is respect. In particular, the people that move in, well, I don't need it, well, why should I live in another language? You know, just because I'm moving over the border, what's that gonna do with the price of bananas? And with the children themselves, coming back to the first uh, questioner, I think a teaching profession seems to be missing a point that it is a skill. The fact that you can speak another language is a skill. It doesn't matter what language it is, but the key words for me, and I'd like your opinion, is respect and skill. Yeah, I mean, I think skill is, is, is if it ties in with my reply to the first question, that um, it, it, it's the skill and the benefits that you get which are very important. Respect, absolutely. Um, and we have been working, for example, with some Polish children from the Fenland area who, in the last two years, have been horribly bullied because they come from the Polish language community and have a Polish accent. And we've been working precisely on questions of respect. And one of the things we've done is we've brought them to Cambridge with their classmates and, uh, and, 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 and had a session saying, fantastic, you speak Polish. We teach Polish at the University of Cambridge. You know, Polish is a language we really value. Can you speak some words of Polish? Oh, that's wonderful. Tell us about it. Tell us about your language. Tell us about your culture. And the other children are absolutely flabbergasted that we could possibly in be interested in our ivory tower in Polish and that it could be a language that was interesting. So we get them to think about, you know, why they... And then talk about how do you feel about it and, and trying to get build up this respect. So... Respect is at the heart of what we're doing, and, and the work in Northern Ireland is absolutely grounded in, in respect. I have, a, I have a... So I do have a partner working... Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep. So, two things that I'm doing, I can speak of. One is that I'm funding a project which this lady referred to, which is precisely looking at mentoring and supporting language learning across Wales. So, we, we, we're really helping that. And I came to Cardiff two or three months ago to talk to uh, the, the team who are rolling out the, the new curriculum in Welsh and modern languages to provide expertise. So I'm not doing a huge amount, but I am doing something, and I'm continuing to work with that team and indeed with some of the policymakers in the Welsh government, advising them um, about the best ways of learning language and about these questions of supporting language, whatever it is. So. I'm perhaps not doing enough, but I, we, you know, we, we are doing what we can. And uh, um, it, it, it's, it's a huge problem. It's a juggernaut we've got to try and turn around this anti-languages feeling, which is so prevalent in our society at the moment. Th thank you very much. You clearly are doing... Uh, um, Sorry. Um, <laughs> you clearly are doing very, very important work. But it occurs to me that there might be a missed opportunity um, in that uh, I understand, although I'm not familiar with the data, I understand that there are similar cognitive benefits 
and well-being benefits in terms of music, uh, which, of course, has been described as a language yeah. uh, and for which there are also educational threats, mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, would there not be a possibility? Uh, well, first of all, has there been, to your knowledge, any comparison between language learning and music learning uh, that, uh, that could either show uh, factors that could benefit one through the other or, uh, or could be parallel benefits uh, that, uh, if you were learning music, then perhaps the benefits of learning language would be, would be less. Do you understand? Yeah, 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 uh, and it seems yeah, to me you're so yeah. well set up with, these, uh, with, the, with this group yeah. that it wouldn't be impossible to incorporate music as a, as a, 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 a different sort of language. I mean, one of the things that we're... At the moment, we've been very much concentrating on the benefits of language learning. Um, but we're not saying, of course, that it's only language learning. It's, it's again, if you go back to the sport analogy, you know, if you, if you just run, you won't get so much if you run and swim and cycle. So, you know, that you can, that other things are going to, to, to help. Um, although language learning is, I'm going to keep plugging languages. Language learning is particularly good because we have, you have different skills. You learn vocabulary, which is one set of skills. You have syntax, which is the structure, the grammar, which is a different set of skills. You have the sounds, which is a different set of skills. You've got these different things. It's in music as well. There are parallels there. And one of the things that's interesting about music, and I often say this, uh, when people ask me this question is, isn't it interesting that say, people say, do music because it will help, help you to be good at maths? I don't think I've ever heard someone say, do maths because it will make you good at music. That tells you everything about the hierarchies in our society. So I think at the moment we are focusing very much on languages, but we are absolutely conscious that there are partnerships to be built to give strength to this message that the arts and humanities are really valuable and that music, creative arts, languages are all under threat in this kind of um, utilitarian world we live in and that you know, we, need to, we, we do need to have these partnerships. Now, I'm getting a red light being flashed angrily at me, which I think probably means that my... Time is up, so I'm. I'm apologise. I know there are other questions. I can see hands. I apologise if I haven't had a chance to talk to you. But do continue to look at what we're doing. And I say, if you are interested, we're always happy to hear from people um, who want to join with us. So thank you very much for coming today.